We're going to be in Genesis chapter 37 today, and uh, kind of skipping over a genealogy there uh, with, uh, with Esau. It is important scripture, um, but we're, we're not going to cover it this time. And so we'll be uh, talking through uh, uh, chapter 37 here. Um, this uh, chapter really deals with injustice. It deals with the idea of suffering for doing good. Uh, it deals with the idea of being enslaved uh, when you did not deserve it and, uh, and that kind of a thing. I don't know if you have dealt with suffering for doing good at all. I don't know if you've dealt with uh, that idea, but today it's, it's, it's becoming more commonplace to be persecuted as a Christian uh, I, I, I dare call it persecution, but that's about the only word for it. It's, uh, but it, it is becoming fairly commonplace to be persecuted as a Christian in uh, the United States. And part of the reason for that is that our, as our country continues to become more and more secular, uh, what ends up happening is that there ends up being a large difference between those people who still claim to be believers in Jesus Christ uh, still adhere to the, the scriptures and those who have completely rejected it. Those who believe in uh, the spiritual world and those who believe in, in no such thing. They believe that this is all that there is. And so these uh, secularists, folks in our, in our world whom God loves and created in his own image and whom Jesus has died for and has offered forgiveness to them, those folks at times are working against what the scriptures have to say. The problem is, is that oftentimes we believe that if we just do what Jesus did, in fact, I just saw a post yesterday on Facebook from somebody who was saying something similar that was, it was basically saying this, like if we just did what Jesus did, then people would like us and people would uh, get along with us, that kind of a deal. So we can receive uh, pushback, we can, we can take the idea that someone disagrees with us or doesn't like us as though we're doing something wrong and we're not acting the way that Jesus would have us act. The problem with that is that they have uh, cherry-picked, and oftentimes we cherry-pick, uh, various scriptures to uh, try to uh, come up with our own theology rather than looking at the breadth of Scripture and seeing what God has to say to us. And so oftentimes we're persecuted for doing what is good, and as a result, uh, we sometimes can change our theology or sometimes we can live as victims. But I want you to see the life of Joseph. We've been talking through the life of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and Jacob is, is a, a very central figure. He's not the most central. Abraham is the most central figure. Joseph is probably uh, the third most central, I should say. There's a lot of scripture devoted to Joseph. In fact, from here, uh, chapter 37 through chapter 50, is predominantly about Joseph and his brothers as well. But it's, it's talking about Joseph. So Joseph is... Uh, uh, the son of Jacob, one of the younger sons, not the youngest son, but the almost youngest son, I should say. And so here we have Joseph, and he is a boy, and he is 
the son of Jacob, whose name was turned into Israel. And so it's going to begin to tell us the story about Joseph. So I want to read that to you right now. Chapter 37, we'll pick this up. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Stop right there for just a second. So uh, the first verse of chapter 37 there, chapter 37, verse 1, really kind of goes with the last chapter. You've got to remember that the chapters were inserted after the scriptures were, were written. The, the chapter numbers and verse numbers are not inspired. And so really, verse 1 kind of goes with the previous passage. Verse 2 begins a new passage. It begins a new section. In this new section, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. So when it says the generations of Jacob, it's talking about these are the families of Jacob. These are the generations that come after Jacob. So we just put a period basically on the life of Jacob. We'll still talk about him here and there, but this is predominantly about the families that came from Jacob. Here we go. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, two great names for wives. All right, Bilhah and Zilpah. All right, here we go. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. If that wasn't enough, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Oh, good. Thank you, Joseph. Please tell. Uh, behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Who's the sun and the moon? It's mom and dad. Who's the 11 stars? It's his brothers. They were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come uh, to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, that is Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing their flock. And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will, then we will say uh, that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite trainers, uh, traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, if you look at this passage here for a, a few moments, some things that you're going to see are the fact that this guy is loved by his father. He is born to Rachel. Rachel is Jacob, slash Israel's, favorite wife. Uh, I have a favorite wife as well. She's my only wife, but uh, <laughs> she is Jacob's favorite wife. Different religion. Uh, uh, anyway, all right. Uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. And so as a result, here uh, she has Joseph, and, she, uh, and he loves Joseph. And clearly Joseph is loved uh, by his father more than all of them. In fact, it says that. He, he is loved by his father more than all of the other brothers from all of the other wives. And so it says here in the, the first bit, it says, in fact, it says in verse 3. No, back up. I need to say this. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. So he was a, a boy along with these, uh, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and those sons' names were Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And so he's out tending the sheep with these uh, four brothers, 
and he's hanging out with them, and he's just a young lad, and he's out there hanging out with them. But what ends up taking place is that they do something that's wrong. That's what it seems like. There's some question as to whether Joseph is a tattletale or whether he's saying something evil or wrong about his brothers. But I think the text really shows us something. That here we have in Joseph a truly good person. And he's not a, so, so much of a good person that he uh, still doesn't need Jesus or something along the, or need God's forgiveness in his life. But in, on the whole, on the grand scheme of things, as we've looked through Genesis, we have seen person after person, patriarch after patriarch, that essentially are, are they really aren't great people. They are not good people. They are imperfect people that God uses to do his perfect uh, deeds. And so we come to this guy, Joseph, and really Joseph is kind of an innocent 17-year-old, and he wants to please his father who really loves him. So he's out shepherding with his brothers, these four other brothers, and they do something, and so he comes back and tells his dad. And he brings a bad report of his brothers, and they hate him. They absolutely hate him. And in fact, it says three different times. Verse 4, when, uh, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, and they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if, if you have kids at home, but like sometimes I feel like, I mean, we were on vacation. It's summer vacation. We went on a trip recently, and it was just like it was, they could not speak peacefully to one another. I mean, these children, they're constantly arguing with each other. And that seems like that's what's going on here, is that they are constantly being mean, uh, especially to Joseph. And yet Joseph is a loved son who wants to do what's right. And then it says in verse 5 that he had a dream, and he tells it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. And they immediately see the import of this dream. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you really going to be this person? So one of the things that, they, that they're seeing here is they're seeing the meaning immediately as he tells the dream. They're seeing the meaning of this. And some commentators even say that it would have been obvious to them that this dream had come from God, that God had spoken to Joseph, that he had revealed something about his future, and yet his brothers were totally against this. They did not want to hear this. And in, in that sense, they were against God. There's no indication that the rest of his brothers, Reuben had slept with one of his father's wives. It says that in chapter 35. That's a, it gives us a little bit of an indication as to why Reuben would be trying to defend Joseph and say, hey, I want to I try to save Joseph because I'm, I'm in hot water. I've kind of lost my birthright as the firstborn. And so if I bring back the, the, this blessed son, the son that my father loves, maybe he'll, he'll like me. But Reuben is, is kind of a terrible guy. Judah is kind of a terrible guy. These other brothers seem to be doing what's wrong because Joseph came home and told his father a bad report. And yet here he is, and he's speaking about this dream. Now we could say, hey Joseph, when God gives you a dream that says you're going to rule over everybody, especially your brothers, let's maybe keep that, you know, close to the vest, right? <laughs> like, like, let's just, let's just try to, let's try not to announce this. There's a small side point there is that sometimes God gives us vision. Sometimes God gives us things that he wants us to do, and sometimes that vision isn't for right now. I remember as a, as a young man in my early 20s, 
I'm feeling like God had given me a vision. I, I don't know how to des- describe it, but it was a picture of what I would love to see happen. I believe it came from God. I was picturing what this church looks like. And as soon as I had this, this, this vision, this, this dream, and I, I don't want to say it was weird. I don't, want, I don't want to say it was crazy. I just, God had given me an idea, and I felt like it came from God. That's what I mean when I say that. But I immediately went out and began to tell people about it. I told a pastor, and he said, did you eat some bad pizza? Because that sounds crazy. Gives you a little bit of like how much hope people had in me at that point too, right? <laughs> like, uh, I was a screw up, and I was telling people about where I, where I thought God was gonna. I'm gonna lead this this thing. I'm gonna lead this this. I, I wouldn't have called it a church at the time, and people were like, "Yeah, all right, catch you later," you know, kind of a deal. But sometimes God gives us visions, and they're not really for right now; they're for later. And sometimes we need to share them with people who are close to us. Uh, but not share them with, with everybody. Vision isn't always for right here and right now. Sometimes it's way in the future. And indeed, that's the way that it was with Joseph. So perhaps Joseph, you know, did something stupid by announcing these things. But he's 17. Um, I don't think it's sinful. It's just youthful exuberance. And so he shares this. And they, they hate him even more. And then he dreams another dream. And, and that really even includes his father and his father's wives or whatever that... Uh, whatever the moon represents, and the brothers, and they hate him even more. And yet here's a guy who's hearing from God, and it says this in verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. His brothers were jealous of him. There was a jealousy about this guy, a hatred and a jealousy, perhaps a hatred because of the jealousy of this guy because perhaps... He's hearing from God. Perhaps he stands for what is right. In fact, that that is what it looks like. When you look at the whole of Joseph's life, when you read through the whole account, what you see is repeatedly over and over and over again that this guy is the same in public as he is in private. This guy, his character is in line with what he says that he is. His life matches up with his lips. He is a guy who withstands sin on every level. He's a guy who consistently is hearing from God, and he's, he's a guy who's consistently following God and walking with him. And so there's a jealousy and there's a hatred of him. And make no mistake, in large part, this is in part what our world feels about us when we hold to Christian values. Now, I, I, I want to be careful that, uh, that when I say Christian values, that you don't immediately believe that what I'm talking about is a conservative political agenda. There are aspects of the conservative political agenda that we believe come from Jesus. There are aspects of that. But there are also aspects of a uh, liberal side of things. When, we, when it comes to caring for people, loving people, loving the foreigner, where this comes from. And you, mu- you must understand something. That if you're like Joseph, and if you're somebody who stands for what is true and what is right, what you must see is this, is that you are going to get criticism from both sides. 
See, there are hot-button issues on the conservative side of things that we'd say we very much support. But you could really tick off the conservatives by, uh, by essentially saying this, that immigrants should not be mistreated and that they should be cared for. And that that is a clear biblical principle. That is something that when you're on Jesus' side, when you're doing Jesus' work, when you're walking with him, what you might find is this, is that you not only tick off the people that you think should be for you, but you're also ticking off the people that are against you. There's a, a massive problem today in the church where people believe that if we're ticking people off, if people are upset with what we preach, if people are upset with what we believe, then therefore we must be doing something wrong. But that is not the case. That is not the case at all. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, John chapter 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus said this. That there are going to be times where friendship with the world is not possible and it is not right or good. Not a popular sentiment in young churches today. It's not a popular sentiment. It says in James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, friendship with the world is fine and good. We talk about friendship evangelism. We talk about uh, reaching people for Christ. But too often that turns into sacrificing our values or never speaking for truth. Too often in the past, we've been absolutely militant about this. Too often in the past, we've aligned ourselves, Christians have aligned ourselves with a particular political movement instead of aligning ourselves with Jesus and being willing to bear the reproach of Christ from both liberal and conservatives. If, if you really want to be hated, in fact, I would say the exact opposite of the, of the post that I saw. If you really want to, be, uh, want to be hated, then just go ahead and follow the way of Jesus. Go ahead and follow the way of Jesus. Because at times, it's going to lead to hatred of you and hatred of me. There are so many things going on right now. I almost want to use this as a warning. It's, it's, it's like being on a roller coaster. You can kind of hear the clicks as you're going up the hill. And we're about to go down the other side, I think. I think, there's, I, I think it's, there is going to be outright persecution on some level. It'll, it's going to keep ramping up and keep going and keep going. And our dependence on uh, somebody being in, in, in a political position of power, whether it's on the Supreme Court or in the presidency, if that's where you stand today, 
That's not where Jesus would have you be. Our dependence must be on Christ. And so in that sense, persecution is a good thing. But how do we respond when we experience persecution in life? How do we respond when we experience uh, suffering for doing good? How do we respond when we experience injustice? It may, there may be injustice in, uh, in your work. Someone finds out that you're a Christian, and they immediately take everything that you say, and they twist it in some respect. How do you respond to people who treat you unjustly because you just you hold to a belief in biblical marriage and sexuality? That no one at no time should be having sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That sexual ethic is, is often berated in public. It's called archaic. It's called ridiculous. But how do you respond to that injustice? How do you respond to suffering for doing good? There's all kinds of injustice out there. All kinds of injustices that we end up having to deal with. There's other ways that there's injustice in this passage. You see this young man who's been favored by his father through no fault of his own. And you see him uh, actually trying to uh, help his brothers. They went off to shepherd their flocks near Shechem. If you remember, Shechem is where Simeon and Levi committed genocide. They killed an entire city of people because their sister Dinah had been raped by one man. So they killed everyone. And so here they are. They're going near Shechem. And uh, the truth is, when they came out of Shechem, God had to uh, basically supernaturally bring a fear on these people around the city of Shechem so that they would not attack Jacob and his sons. And so here we have the sons who have gone to shepherd flocks near Shechem. Jacob begins to get worried about his sons there, thinking, you know, I hope that they're okay. I hope no one's attacked them. Joseph, would you please go? And Joseph says, here I am. I'm there, Dad. I'll go check on them. So jo here's Jacob going to his brothers, going to help them. And when he goes, what ends up happening is this, is that they conspire with one another, they throw him in a pit, they sell him to these traitors, and he's put into slavery. You think about the injustices in our world. You think about all of the injustices that people experience in everyday life. We hear about it all of the time. Now, you think about uh, Facebook and Twitter, any kind of social media today, how it's, it's quite easy to announce how you have been unjustly treated, how you have been uh, uh, victimized, if you will. And so what happens is this, is that every day there's a new injustice. Every day our world is crying out for justice, and they see somebody or they see something that has been victimized. And let's be really honest Someone has been victimized in all of these situations. There is sin in our world. We can openly acknowledge that people of, of 
all races, in some sense or another, have been persecuted, some more than others. People of all races have had to endure the injustices of the past, the injustice of slavery toward African Americans, the injustices that were committed against American Indians as uh, the West was one, as it were, the injustices that happen against women in so many ways. We wouldn't want our daughters treated that way. We wouldn't want, want uh, someone oogling, grabbling, fondling our daughters. I would punch you right square in the face. This is real. It's real. And I say that because I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking about these things, I can sense the conservatism in the room. I don't know how conservative this room is. I don't know how, how you vote. But sometimes when we begin to talk about these races and people and, and things like that, Oftentimes, we can, in our, our political minds, we can begin to say to ourselves, you know, uh, they are not really, they have not been victimized, or they just need to pull themselves up uh, by their bootstraps, or they just need to stop thinking about those things. But the truth is, you and I must acknowledge, first and foremost, as being a part of Jesus' mission, not a part of our mission, that these people were truly victimized. That sin really happened to them. And sin really happens to you. And by the way, you and I commit victimization. You and I are people who commit these sins. So what we can say is this, is that injustice really does happen in our world. We oftentimes argue about how we're going to deal with that injustice. But we need to acknowledge that injustice has taken place. But the world's answer to injustice is often victimhood. The world's answer to injustice is often to become a victim. And it's true, we try to avoid those types of things. When somebody says, I'm a survivor of cancer. I'm a sexual abuse survivor. I'm whatever type of survivor. We try to get away from those words, but oftentimes in our world today, our world is telling us, you should live, you should reside in the idea that you are a victim. You should live in the context of victimhood. See, victimhood says this, the most important thing about me is what's happened to me or what what has wrongly happened to me. You could say this about depression and anxiety and stuff. The most important thing about me is the fact that I'm dealing with depression and and anxiety. And we live like that. We live in victimhood sometimes in that respect. And that's difficult, I know. But let me just tell you, I I have friends who deal with this all all of the time. So this is not meant to be uh, a rip on you if that's something that you, you deal with. The truth is, is that oftentimes our world is pushing us to be defined by the way that we were victimized, to allow ourselves to see ourselves as victims. Now think about how that plays out today. If we've been victimized, if we've been treated unjustly in the context of this world as Christians, if if the world uh, hates us, If the world is against us, what the world is telling us and what our world consistently does 
is to say that you should live in the context of that victimhood. You should announce and make sure that everybody knows that the most important thing about you is that you're persecuted in the Oregon legislature, or you're persecuted in your job, or you're persecuted. And I'm not saying there are not times to push back. I believe that there are. But that's not the most important thing about you. How you've been victimized, how you've been treated unjustly, how you deal with the things that, you, um, that naturally have just happened to you, you know, through your health, or through just circumstances, through the job that you lost. See, my wife and I were talking about this earlier, and she was talking about how we don't have a category for suffering. We don't have a category. The only way, the, the only thing that we can say about suffering is that it's bad and that it should not be. And as a result, there's nothing that we can do with it. If something bad happens to you, if something's taken away from you, our world believes this is all that there is. This is the only life I get. I go to nothing when this is over. I have to get everything that I'm going to get right here and right now. And if I don't get it right here and right now, then it's lost forever. If you take something from me, like my innocence, if you take something from me, like my health, if you take something from me, like my freedom, this is all that I have. This is all that there is. And so I, I have to live in that victimhood. I have to announce the fact that I've lost these things. I have to uh, wallow in the suffering that I experience constantly. Do you wallow in the suffering that you experience? We can wallow in the suffering that we experience by listening to talk radio incessantly. Allowing somebody to stir up victimization, victimhood in our minds. To talk about how the Democrats are victimizing us. Or how the Republicans are victimizing us. That's victimhood. That's victimhood. To sit there and allow... Now, you, you have leanings. I have leanings. But the truth is, is that you can't live in victimhood. That's not what God has for you. The most important thing about you is not the way that you're being victimized politically. It's not the way that you've been victimized by a broken and fallen world through the reality of the fact that your health isn't as great as it should be, or the fact that you deal with depression or anxiety, or the fact that you might die early. That's not the most important thing about you. See, victimhood is something that we wear instead of hope in Jesus, hope in God. When we allow ourselves to be incessant victims, we're rejecting the God of the Bible. Did you know that? And this is what makes Joseph su such a brilliant character. He's such a, uh, a brilliant character because he says this at, at, the, end, at the end of uh, the book of Genesis. This is kind of the last word. Joseph has been through all kinds of stuff. I mean, if you look at his life and you look at everything that took place, it was like this had to happen and that had to happen and this had to happen and that had to happen. And it was just 
trial after trial after trial as he goes through life. And we're going to be preaching on all, all of those things over the next several weeks. But his father finally dies, and his brothers get scared. And his brothers send him a message. And then they come to him, and it says in chapter 50, verse 18, Genesis chapter 50, verse 18, it says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Look at that. Don't fear because of this. Am I in the place of God? See, Joseph as a victim, somebody who, who believed that he was a victim, is, is putting himself in the place of God. That's why he says that. When you let, live as a victim of your health, of other people, of parents who failed you, of a boss, of a people group, of a political party, when you live as a victim and you take vengeance into your own hands, you are putting yourself in the place of God and you have put on victimhood. It is who you are. It is a lack of dependence on God. He says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Do you remember what it said at the beginning? They were so angry with him that they could not speak a kind word. What is this guy doing? What is going on here? Do you realize everything that he said? As for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What, what, what are we talking about? What did God mean for good? What, what kinds of things? Well, look at the brothers. They say, come now, let us kill him. In verse 20 of chapter 37. We're going to throw him into this pit. We're, we're, we're going to do this. Reuben tries to go and save him. But Reuben doesn't have any luck. The, the brothers go and sell him. And sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And he becomes a slave. So he's enslaved. So look at all of the things that God had to put in place. Jacob had to think to himself. No, no, no. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Joseph had to be the favored son of the favored wife. Then uh, Joseph had to be given a coat of many colors, which sounds absolutely ridiculous to me, but uh, <laughs> uh, he had to be given a coat of many colors. He had to have a couple of dreams where God speaks to him. Look at all the things that God is doing. God is aligning the stars, if you will. Which is, that's not Christian at all, but in, in any case... He's aligning these things. Jacob had to think to himself, you know what? I'm worried about the sons as they're in Shechem, and so I'm going to send uh, Joseph. Joseph, will you go? And Joseph had to be willing to go. Joseph is willing to go, and Joseph goes uh, to Shechem, ends up in Dothan. 
The brothers see him from far off. They decide that they're going to kill him. They hate him. Reuben's plans had to fall through in order to save Joseph. Just then, some Midianite traders had to be going by, and somebody from the brothers had to say, dude, let's make a quick buck. Like, Either way, he's out of our hair. Let's sell him as a slave. They sell him as a slave. Look at everything that had to happen in Joseph's life in order for him to come to the end of his life, in, in order for him to go through all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the, the difficulty in his life, and then to get to the end of his life and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The sin that you tried to commit against me, God was using your sin for his ultimate glory. So I want you to remember this, that God uses the sin committed against you. God uses the brokenness of this world through the diseases and the despair and all of those things that you experience. God uses a political party that is against Christianity. God uses the forces of this world as evil as they may seem for his own glory. They are playing into his hand. You and I, when we sin, are playing into his hand. God is not out of control. You say, I don't know how God could use the things that I've gone through. Matt, you don't know my childhood, and I don't. I don't entirely. I know some of you. I know some of you where, you, where you've come from, what you've, been, what you've dealt with, but not all of you. And it's true. I, I don't know that. But you don't know how God's going to use that. You can't see 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. You can't see to eternity. But God does. And so while we're sitting here whining and complaining about our ailments, while we're sitting here whining and complaining about the other political party, whichever side you're on, while we're sitting here and, and we are constantly saying, you know, evil shouldn't be happening. The truth is that, that's just wearing victimhood like it's a badge. So what's the answer? It's servanthood. It's servanthood. See, Jesus comes in perfection and he serves in perfection. If you look at Isaiah 52 and 53, people call this the, the, the suffering servant. It says in Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Isaiah 53, 1, or 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. And then it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's that God is going to take the Son of God, 
Jesus himself, God in the flesh, and he shows who he is. He's a servant. And he gives up his life, and he gives up his rights. He's despised and rejected. No one was victimized like Jesus was victimized. No one was mistreated the way that Jesus was mistreated. No one was pierced the way that he was pierced. No one has been oppressed or afflicted the way that he has. His punishment, his law in life was so unjust. It was so undeserved. Yet, what do we hear? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. What's that saying? It was the will of God that Jesus himself would go through this. See, our world doesn't have a category for suffering, but we definitely do. Because our movement leader, our God, is the one who perfectly and completely uses suffering. And he used the cross of Jesus Christ for that. So that you could be saved from a life of victimhood. So that you could be saved from a life of constantly believing that you have been unjustly treated. So that you could look to the one, Jesus Christ, and you could see how he was unjustly treated. And as a result, you could walk with him. You could see that this servant took all of this on and it was all within the will of the Father. Do you see how Joseph responded? And not only did he speak kindly to them, but he said God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Don't, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Who's Joseph providing for? He's providing for the very men who threw him in a pit and sent him into slavery that ultimately led to prison. Years upon years upon years. He's providing not just for them, but for their kids. Men and women, are we providing for the people that are against us? See, the opposite of victimhood is servanthood. Like Jesus is a servant to you because of this. Because you are the one who threw Jesus in the pit. You are the one who sent Jesus to slavery, slavery. You and I are, are the ones who unjustly treated him. When he was crucified to that cross, I crucified him. You crucified him. And what, yet what does he do? He speaks kindly to you. He speaks kindly to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, he speaks kindly to you. He doesn't say to you, hey, get your stuff together. Get your, get your stuff together so that I'll finally be glorified by you. No, he comes and, and he says, you don't have to run. You don't have to, you don't have to put in all this effort. Try to be this, try to be that, try to be good. Stop doing this, start doing that. No, Jesus comes to you and he, says, and he says, come to me. Walk to me. I'm here. I'm ready with relationship. 
He's not here as a victim saying, you better bow down and grovel because you put me on that cross. Yeah, we'll see about this. No, he says, come to me. He lifts up our head. And he loves us. And he dies for us. And he feeds us. Jesus isn't a victim. Therefore, you and I should not be a victim. Jesus doesn't play the victim card with you and I. Jesus plays the servant card with you and I. Friendship with the world extends to how we view the suffering in our life. If you view your suffering incorrectly and believe that you should operate as a victim, you've missed it completely. That God uses the worst thing that happened to the greatest man who ever lived for his own glory. If you miss that, but if you see Jesus as the ultimate servant, how he died in your place because of the way that you victimized him, then you can also be a servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you were willing, that you were willing to go to the cross. Lord, we thank you that, that you do not play the victim card with us, but you play the servant card. And Lord, you, you died for us. You paid for our sins. And so, Lord, we, we want to give you honor and praise. Lord, we want to receive your love this morning, your grace, your mercy. Lord, there's so many of us that walked in here believing that we had to strive to be loved by you. But, Lord, you, have, you are the one who's done the striving. You are the one who went to the cross for us so that we do not need to work to be loved by you. But Lord, we get to serve you as a result. So Lord, may that truth come home to us this morning. Lord, may we, may we hear your words. May we understand what you've done for us. And J Joseph is just a faint picture of a perfect God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who dies for the unrighteous. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.